Welcome to Uncommons, a podcast focused on Canadian politics. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. On this episode, I'm joined by Charlie Angus. He's the NDP member for Timmins James Bay. He was first elected to Parliament in 2004. And in the last Parliament, we worked closely together on the Ethics Committee, focused on privacy issues, ethical AI, and really going down the rabbit hole of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Out of that work, we then participated in the International Grand Committee, collection of over 10 parliaments around the world focused on big data, big tech, protecting privacy, and in the end, protecting our democracies against election interference. Now, two quick things before we get to Charlie. First, while the audio sounds good now, in the episode I sound a little bit like a kidnapper demanding ransom. It'll be fixed for next time. And two, I want to play a clip of Charlie at the first IGC meeting in London, holding Facebook to account. Here it is. The Westminster tradition has seen many threats and bumps and bruises over the, the centuries. We've never seen anything quite like Facebook, where while we were playing on our phones and apps, our democratic institutions, our form of civil conversation, seem to have been upended by frat boy billionaires from California. Charlie, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me on. I wanted to have you on as our first guest, uh, as far as parliamentarians go, because of our work on committee in the last parliament. And not only because of the kind of work that we did, which I found really interesting, but also just the just how nonpartisan it was. And you've been in parliament since 2004. Was, was that just a moment in time or, or have you participated in, in similar committees? Well, uh, I think it was a really unique thing that we accomplished in the last parliament where the ethics committee undertook that huge investigation into Facebook uh, Cambridge Analytica, began to work internationally with other parliamentarians, helped establish the first uh, international grand committee where legislators from around the world began to talk together about how we need to address issues of big data, how we moved it into issues of uh, AI, uh, citizen rights in the age of big data, uh, issues of antitrust. Uh, we really covered the gamut. And I, I want to say that in my 16 years in Parliament, I've always been somewhat uh, suspicious of glory days about parliamentary reports because parliamentarians create big tomes. They get sent to the nobody reads, and nobody, <laughs> and that's it. That's and, and I've I've heard MPs say years later, but I worked on this parliamentary report, and it's like, man, I can't even remember it six months after it came out. And, and that's not to diminish the work, but it's re, you know, the reality is. Uh, we make a lot of recommendations, but they aren't always heard. What I think was unique about this was it's the first time ever that not only did we work in a nonpartisan manner, we didn't start out to say, let's build a peaceable kingdom here. We realized that the threat to parliamentary democracy was much bigger than any of our individual party agendas, and that we began to work together because we realized we were really taking on some powers that are, are very dark and actually have the power to upend democratic systems. So uh, I think that work of that committee laid a lot of groundwork, not just in Canada, but internationally. And I, I'm hoping that what we did in that, out of that parliamentary committee will continue to set a course for uh, future Canadian digital policy. And in, in some ways, my feeling is that it has already. My conversations, when I introduced the bill to give the Privacy Commissioner greater powers a couple of years ago, my conversations with the industry ministry were, they were pretty hesitant, even though I thought it was fairly low-hanging fruit. Our committee had recommended it twice already. It, other information, Privacy Commissioners have these powers around the world. And now, 
you look at the platform that we just ran on, you look at the promises we made, and I fully, now that COVID-19 is here, everything's going to be delayed, of course, and necessarily so, but the government is now in a position to move forward with that measure and, and more than that measure. And I'm not sure that they would have been in that place, but for the work of our committee and highlighting these issues in, in a very public way. Well, I, I definitely agree with you on that point. Uh, we have really incredible dedicated public servants in the offices of parliament, the lobbying commissioner, the ethics commissioner, the privacy commissioner, uh, I'm missing one, but uh, I'm, uh, the access to information commissioner, yeah. yes. And the problem has always been is that government likes to have them, but government doesn't like to be accountable to them. So right. it's always been they, they work with underfunded budgets and they work on the principle that if they catch somebody doing something bad, which shame and embarrassment is supposed to be enough. And that seems to be a very Canadian sense of that. Well, that's justice. If we make them feel bad, they'll do the right thing. <laughs> and then we ended up dealing with groups like aggregate IQ and uh, uh, Cambridge Analytica and people who don't really give a damn about what the rules are. And so our committee started saying, we need to really up the powers of the privacy commissioner, but we need serious powers and tools so that when Facebook blows off Canada, our parliament, uh, our laws, uh, that the parliament, that our par privacy commissioner has the power to say, no, sorry, not this time. We're going to hold you to account. And I think government has come to realize because we've really showed the damage that could be done if we don't have these tools in place, that we will be moving to a much stronger regime to protect uh, privacy and, and citizen rights. And it's, it's quite something when you think about it. I remember we had Facebook at our Canadian committee and they were insistent that they followed all the laws throughout the Cambridge Analytica situation. And it was a bit incomprehensible at the time. We're looking at it thinking, okay, you've had hundreds of thousands of Canadians that are impacted by this, but only a few hundred that were using this application. How could this possibly be in line with our consent rules under the existing law? And then of course the privacy commissioner later finds that they were violating the law. And to your point, they just said, thanks for coming out privacy commissioner. We're not gonna listen to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the ultimate thing is that you have a company that is much, that sees itself as above domestic law. And I would say the same thing for Google. I would say the same thing for Amazon. These digital giants are, have powers that are unprecedented. And the fact that they, they will willingly tell us they will pick and choose what laws they like and which laws they don't feel apply to them uh, is really not acceptable, particularly in the case of Facebook, where we saw completely egregious uh, failure to protect citizen rights that has resulted in the interference in elections and Brexit, um, the rise of perhaps the Trump campaign certainly used these kind of breaches. Um, they need to, to, to be to a higher standard. And part of that is recognizing that they, in whatever jurisdiction they are, they have to re respect the laws. And Canada needs to say, we will make you respect the laws. And that's part of, I think, the realization we've come to out of the work of the, our committee. And I found it interesting too, just the move from Canada, recognizing, okay, no party can tackle this on its own. So we came together within Canada across party lines, but no country can tackle this problem on its own. And so we started to see great cooperation with Damian Collins in the UK, with legislators really around the world, as you note, and that International Grand Committee, we were lucky to host the second iteration in Ottawa, but uh, it's it's supposed to continue. I mean, obviously the Washington meeting in June might be put off now because of COVID-19, but there's still a strong, I think, impetus and desire to continue that work. 
what happened with uh, the work between it began with us and the UK committee uh, was certainly unprecedented. We were very much in uncharted waters, but we were dealing with people who had put our democracy into very uncharted waters. So we knew that there were witnesses that were beyond the reach of the British uh, parliamentary system who were in Canada. And we called those witnesses. Yeah. Uh, were they more tangential to our study, perhaps? But we felt getting their testimony in the record was important because of what's being done internationally is the fact that you have these digital mercenaries who borders don't seem to matter. And so our work with the Damien Collins committee began to really change the nature of the international conversation. And then other parliamentarians around the world began to notice. So I really think that Canada set, uh, set the pace. And what I want to say as well that I think was really important in the work of our committee is that we all came at it, you know, knowing something about the big digital realm and the cloud and that, but it's, these are, these in some ways are very complex issues, but in other ways, they're simple issues. And I think the more we, we got into it, the more we realized the simplicity of the issue is like, we're talking about the rights of citizens. We're talking about fundamental rights of persons. We aren't just consumers of this, uh, of the cloud. We aren't just people who tick off or don't tick off the, uh, you know, the, the terms and conditions boxes. We have rights. And as parliamentarians, we have rights. And how do we exert those rights in the age of companies that are so big, um, they basically think we're irrelevant as democracies. And I think the Canadian delegation and the Canadian parliamentary team really started to set some very important yardsticks for where we need to go next in terms of this international conversation. You, you are right. I mean, it, some of the answers are so obvious. So when Richard Allen, the VP for P Facebook was there in London at the first IGC meeting, and he said, well, if it's hate speech, we take it down. But if it's right up against that line and hasn't crossed the line yet, maybe we shouldn't promote it. And I'm left thinking, maybe? Yeah, of yeah. course you shouldn't promote content like that. There are really easy answers to these questions if, if you took any serious look from an ethical perspective whatsoever at, 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 at your own behavior. So it is, and then Google, obviously, when they were at the Ottawa meeting, when, you know, when did you stop reading my emails? Two years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, was, uh, that was an extraordinary moment. And then uh, we asked Google, because Eric Schmidt had said that, you know, Google's policy is to go right up to the creepy line, but not cross over. Um, right. And meanwhile, they're telling, showed us these ads of people who you talk to your phone and Google will tell you and your kids all kinds of stuff. I'm sorry, it's not up to a company like Google to decide what the creepy line is in invading our personal lives. Um, and they don't have the moral credibility here, neither does Facebook to decide what's up at the line. We need as legislators to start saying, we, we will take this on. And part of this is a real challenge to uh, the message that I was drummed into me when I was first elected and I was a digital utopian and I got, I thought Google were the greatest people in the world and they seemed great at the time, but it was this whole argument that, well, technology moves faster than parliamentarians and politicians and we let them get in the way. They're going to slow down this beautiful uh, utopia that we're building. And so we sat back and we let them do their thing and it's moved from a utopia to a dystopia. There is no talk about worldwide net and an open internet anymore. It's controlled by a few large corporations. So it becomes reasonable for politicians now to say, well, wait a minute, let's talk about how we regulate this field. So it is fair so that it actually becomes a little more open. And we actually start to push back some of the very extremist 
divisive commentary that is actually being promoted through the algorithms really clearly on YouTube uh, and Facebook. Yeah, it always occurred to me as someone who believes very strongly in free speech, it occurs to me that it can be difficult for these platforms to be responsible unless they have notice of what has been said on the platforms, except where their algorithms are promoting the content in the first place and elevating the content, whether it is the recommendation function on YouTube or the newsfeed in Facebook, there is a responsibility. I mean, as algorithms replace editors, there is a responsibility that the social media platforms have to bear. And I don't think they have adequately yet. I also find it interesting, you know, if I go into a store and I buy this phone, I don't have to read the terms and conditions because I am protected that this phone is going to be working. And if it's not working, I can take it back. It doesn't matter what I sign. I don't have to read those terms and conditions. I know I'm protected as a matter of consumer protection law. But if I put an app on my phone, then I'm expected to read all the terms and conditions yeah, yeah. to protect myself. Yeah. It makes no sense at all. It's also interesting how many different issues this conversation touches. I mean, even already, we've we've touched on privacy, we've touched on uh, impact on elections, and touched also on the divisive content online and, and sort of the negative, uh, and in some cases xenophobic, in some cases the rise of sort of uh, additional neo-Nazi propaganda in our society. And there are so many different things to talk about. And then even recently, you have been part of this effort with Damian Collins to tackle misinformation, disinformation with respect to COVID-19. Well, I, yeah, there's so many things that came out. And I think definitely I, in terms of the Canadian response, our committee was laying out a lot of red flags that had to be attended to. So much so that in the last election, the government set up an emergency response team exactly. to deal with this information because we'd seen the patterns. We'd seen that this information is a tactic. Uh, it was used somewhat in 2015, but 2019, we knew it was coming full on. And, and we were much better prepared and I didn't see the level of disinformation that we were fearing, but we are, weren't prepared for COVID. COVID hit us and yet the same patterns of disinformation, the same players, the same dark operators have been using a crisis like COVID, just like they used the Australian brush fires to try and seed doubt to undermine efforts. Um, in the case of the Australian brush fires, it was a lot of climate change denial coming out of, you know, that all these arsonists basically set these fires and burnt Australia to the ground. Uh, what I think has changed with COVID is that because of the work of the International Grand Committee is that parliamentarians around the world are aware of the patterns. So Damien Collins uh, certainly has been a big, big force in this. And he reached out and said, let's set up a uh, a body that we can talk to each other and, and identify and shut down really serious uh, poisonous disinformation because in the age of uh, a pandemic, manipulation and disinformation can get people killed. So they set up infotagion.com. It's a great clearinghouse. I encourage people to check out infotagion.com. Uh, they are debunking a lot of the, the toxic stuff. Ryerson, um, they are also have a really good uh, COVID disinformation site to identify falsehoods, misinformations, and I, I, truth is truth is is so fundamental in this pandemic that we really need to make sure that the dark operators are not using it to monkey wrench international efforts to keep people safe. And you and I have been obviously critical of the failure for of social media platforms and big tech to to be accountable and to take action. And, and really, I mean, they've put profits before mm -hmm. 
before other important values and respecting their, their users and respecting privacy and, and, and respecting civil discourse in many ways. And, and yet in the course of COVID-19, I have noticed they're now willing to remove content. They are now willing to mute voices, even so far, the leader of Brazil. I mean, there, there seems to be a concerted effort now and a recognition that the failure to take truth seriously in this pandemic is fatal. And I wonder if that will play out more seriously with respect to other crises and other issues going forward. I, I'm really hoping that we're going to see, uh, it's particularly YouTube uh, through Google and Facebook that uh, have driven so much of the disinformation. And part of that is how their algorithms push you to more and more extremist and conspiratorial content. It's, it's, this is what we really, I think, was a big eye-opener for our committee. Um, I, I'm aware that definitely that YouTube is sh shutting down and making some of the more crazy stuff uh, not accessible because this isn't people just well-meaning trying to come up with their own crazy ideas about how to fix things. These are, these are deliberate campaigns to undermine and misinform. I've, uh, since I've gotten involved with Infotagion, people have been sending me stuff and it's really disturbing the insidious nature of some of it. I watched, I came across a Facebook site that's dedicated to hospitals. But what it is, is really attacking frontline medical workers, questioning their motives, pretending that COVID is some kind of, you know, cash grab by the medical profession. Uh, you know, when people are putting their lives on the line, going to work every day, we don't need that. That's a site to me is a hate site. It should be shut down. Um, I've seen some fake documentaries that there is no pandemic in New York City, that the, it's, it's all a lie. Uh, if you get caught up in these kind of misinformation and disinformation and you don't follow uh, what the public health officers are saying, people will die. So there is going to be a real push to, to shut these down. And I think we now are a lot better attuned at identifying. There's a lot of common players in the conspiracy, conspiracy theory worlds, uh, the Russian bots, uh, some really crazy extremist uh, Christian right groups in the US that just feed on this kind of stuff. So we know who these players are a lot better than we did before. And so we're not as surprised. And I think Canadians, certainly, uh, I've been very impressed with the response of Canadians. People are trying to put out good information because they know that good information is like good medicine. It's going gonna, it's gonna to heal us at this time. It's been nice, certainly, to see nothing's perfect, but it's been nice to see whether it's Trudeau working with Doug Ford or whether it is parliamentarians like ourselves. And really, there's no party politics in a serious way playing out today in Canada, whereas we still see, unfortunately, that continue to play out and undermine global health efforts in, in other countries. So we, we are certainly lucky and we have to continue to have that approach, I think, when it comes to public health expertise. It, I'm always struck too by there are new challenges with people increasingly living their lives online. And yet I mentioned consumer protection law previously. Heidi Twork has this idea about taking the model of broadcasting councils, standards councils, and having social media standards councils. I think there are so many ideas from how we have done things before that we could tweak and, and make effective today as well. I wanted to move off of the, the we could talk about this for a very long time, but I also just found it curious. I have only been in Parliament since 2015, and I've sat now on three different committees, national security, ethics, and uh, now industry. 
And I worry about getting back to the place that we were at. I mean, I, not all committees function. It's a product of the people that are on them and the issues that you're dealing with. And I, I just found that ethics committee just worked seamlessly and we didn't let anything sort of get in our way of silly partisan bickering, even when we had ethics issues in front of us that could have sideswiped us completely from the important work we were doing. And I, it's obviously new in this parliament, but I do worry about whether we're able to get back to a place now that I'm on the industry committee. Well, it's, uh, it's a good question. I think there is a, I mean, our, our democracy is set up to be uh, oppositional and it is a fundamental feature of it. And I've never had much time for people say, oh, they shout and they're being like children. I have a problem if people are being sh shut down from speaking. I have a problem when like the sort of the mob I don't have a problem with rough and tumble politics because yeah. it should be passionate. I mean, certainly li having lived my life in opposition, um, I'm, as, I'm as upset hearing bogus answers. I, I just can't stand listening to bogus answers. I want to know. I'm there to get a, the answer. So, so opposition and partisanship does have its place. But uh, one of the things that was really important that came out of the ethics committee is we're dealing with some much bigger issues and we need to find a way to move towards that. And just before the um, parliament ended, the last parliament, we were, I think we were starting to move into new terrain. We saw what was coming and one of them was facial recognition technology. That to me is a huge, huge issue. And we're looking at uh, you know, new parliamentary study on facial recognition technology. So we'll see, we have new players. I mean, a lot of politics is personal. It's about personalities, the kind of people who are at the table. Uh, I've sat on committees where someone says, A, the next person is gonna say B no matter what. Exactly, uh, just exactly. even without thinking, it's just because they rub <laughs> each other the wrong way. And hey, that's, that's <laughs> democracy. But uh, uh, I would hope that some of these issues we can look at in a bigger light. And I've pushed for a standing digital committee uh, because, we should have that. Yeah. I mean, it, in the end, we, we, we made ethics that in, in a significant way, but it yeah. still isn't perfect. And I'm now on the industry committee, I, I wanted to be there because these tech issues and digital rights and privacy issues, when they play out in legislation, I think will largely come to the industry committee. I want to see it through, but it would be nice if there was a, a more united committee that is dealing with these issues instead of being splintered between Ethi, Indu and, and more. And I was jealous yeah. though, when I read the motion that you put forward on Clearview AI, I was like, son of a bitch, Charlie's Sorry, done it again. Man. I Sorry, want to get back on that committee. <laughs> Sorry, you went off to industry where you'll deal with airlines and auto and steel, and they're all really important, but ethics was a committee that nobody paid attention to yeah, unless it was the button corruption show, which was often was what the role of ethics was. So, uh, but you know, I don't think what happened with Clearview AI which is in some ways so shocking in terms of how they misrepresented themselves, how they abused the platform, how many people had access to it, how dodgy the whole thing was. Uh, it seems really shocking, but I don't think from what we saw on our committee, we would have been shocked at all about how this right. rolled out because we saw how this technology is being misused. And, and we were ready for Clearview AI before they came on the scene, uh, just before Parliament ended, we would, that would have been where we were going. So knowing what Clearview AI is up to, uh, we really need to get ground rules in place quickly. And I think before government would have been more wary about it, they would have been, well, it's technology, it's police, blah, blah, blah. But I think we pushed those doors open to say, wait a minute, these are tech companies that can massively abuse privacy rights and human rights and, and the right to just be in a public space without being tracked. 
So I mean, I'm gone hoping... down the rabbit hole of Cambridge Analytica, I wasn't surprised when I saw what happened with Clearview, except that police agencies of good standing, the RCMP, the Toronto Police Service, were using this organization and, and the information from the organization that was clearly not collect, where information had not been collected in a legal way. So that, that to me was still shocking. Well, I mean, uh, you know, in my years in Parliament, it's, uh, we're always told it's another tool in the toolbox for police. You're a lawyer, I'm not. But uh, I figure if it's a tool in the toolbox and you could really hammer a lot of people with it, uh, then bring it before a judge. So there may be reasons uh, that uh, facial recognition technology could be very powerful uh, to identify and protect people, but it should be brought before a judge. But the idea that the RCMP, first of all, said they weren't using it, that admitted they were using it, that it wasn't clear how many people in them had access to it, and then said they'll continue to use it when what they're using may be a database of our stolen images that have breached Canadian law, to me is putting them and any other police service in Canada, uh, it's compromising them because how could they be called upon to investigate breaches of law when they're using this technology? So we need a pause, we need to say, stop right there. Uh, we will now need to lay down some ground rules. And once COVID's over, I'm hoping we're going to get to that because it's it's vital that we move on. And, and I will just say on that, it's been fascinating. We've been getting a lot of interest internationally because this is the first uh, national investigation into facial recognition technology. So again, you're on the wrong committee, my friend, but our committee is still setting the standards internationally where other people are watching and saying Canada is taking this on and we can do a lot of good work I think in the coming years or year or whatever we've got uh, on, on trying again to, to place the rights of citizens squarely front and center in the question of digital policy. So I, I hope to continue to work alongside you with the International Grand Committee because when I was there the first time in London and you were so smart when we had that initial meeting of parliamentarians, we went, oh yeah, I'll go first. Yeah, I'll go first. And, uh, and then you sort of really set the stage in many ways. And I, I was so glad you were with us after that first round. And did you, do you go in, I, I had questions prepared. I, I never know exactly how it'll go with, with the cross-examination style. I, I am more lawyerly, lawyerly for sure. But did you, you come in going, I'm gonna whack them with frat boy billionaires or, <laughs> or is it just spontaneous? Well, frat boy billionaires was a quote that was heard around the world. Definitely. I was, I was, <laughs> yeah, I was exactly. trending every, and you know, leading up to that, we couldn't get a single Canadian journalist to do a story on us right. going to the UK. And right. then suddenly my phone is just bu buzzing, buzzing, buzzing. It's uh, yeah, now we want to talk to you. Everybody wants to talk to us, but uh, well, you know, you're a lawyer. Uh, I quit school to play in a band. So uh but one thing I learned is you don't get on the stage unless you know exactly how that first guitar chord is going to go down. If you're not ready to really make a make make it really grab the crowd's attention, don't bother getting up on stage. So uh, no, but in that in that uh, hearing, I think what was important for me, uh, my role was I felt we could get really lost not lost, but we could be very focused on technicalities, and Facebook could skate. I wanted to tell the story, and the story yeah. was, you know, here's a company that thinks that democracies are quaint. Well, they're not quaint. And our democracies have been through a lot of pressures and we fought to, to save the rights of democracies. So Facebook, you are here to understand that we will fight to defend democracy. So it was, a, it, was, it was a narrative that set up a lot of the other stuff. And the other thing I'll say is I certainly think the Canadian delegation uh, 
definitely were, as we would like to say, went over the boards and dropped the gloves and went into the corners. I think Facebook was a little rattled by us. And the other, the other countries, I think, noticed that we all went at it. You, me, and Zimmer, Bob Zimmer, yeah. all of us went at them hard because we had studied a lot of this and we knew when we were getting bullshitted and, and we don't have time for that anymore. And that, that speaks to just the importance of having continuity in the role too. I mean, we were much more effective having done a number of studies in the Canadian context before we got to London. And it's also important to note too, I mean, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Bob Zimmer. I mean, his leadership as chair was also critical, making sure that this was a united conservative NDP liberal effort. And when we went internationally in particular, no one would have been able to point to any one of us and say, oh yeah, they're representing this ideology. Yeah. Um, but so you mentioned a punk rocker and then, you know, turned into defender of democracy in some ways, but what, how, how does one start out as a dropout musician and then end up as a parliamentarian? Well, I like to say I'm a, I, I am in the NDP, but everybody knows I'm really fundamentally an anarchist. I'm the last guy at all these committees defending and fighting for the rules because it's all we've got. Uh, <laughs> um, well, it's it's a long story. I, I worked with the homeless. I played in a band. I toured the country. Uh, I cleaned chimneys. I ran a magazine. I organized blockades. Ah, that was it. It was organizing blockades. It cost me my journalism career in the north. I was I ran a I was on a railway blockade defending our region. Uh, mm from a hugely devast potentially devastating environmental uh, project that the Mike Harris government promoted. And I realized then that you need people at the table who are gonna be uh, there for the public, uh, that you can't just trust public officials if they're gonna be hanging out with lobbyists and, and the rich and powerful. And I went to Ottawa to be a voice for people who have no voice. And I think that that's what I've tried to do in politics. And so I take the work, whatever committee I'm on is very seriously, but. At the end of the day, people have a right to know that their MP is going to do whatever they have to do to do the right thing to represent the public interest. And so I bring my particular skill set as a ex-punk rock musician and a carpenter and, uh, you know, northern bohemian. It's not always easy, too. I mean, this idea of standing up and, and making the, the dissenting voice or the, the unheard voice heard. It, it, I've certainly at times found it to be a bit of a challenge, even though that, and we represent different geographies and different constituencies and, and different populations as far as uh, people's backgrounds in, in some ways, at least. But I think that there is a shared approach there to say, you know, I'm, I'm not willing, I'm not going to be shy about standing up and being vocal when I need to. Yeah. I think, I think the important thing is, is uh, people will know if you're just grandstanding uh, what you your party gets you elected uh, and you owe the party that loyalty is that they got you elected. You didn't get yourself elected. Yeah. Uh, the party could have gotten 10 people to take your spot. So always go in there with a little bit of humility. The party played a big role in getting you elected. So you are yeah. with a party. And as yeah. Mulroney says, you dance with the one that brung you. But once you're elected, what you have from there on in is your integrity. That's what, that's what gets you through. That's what you have to play on. And if you get in trouble and it happens to a lot of politicians, it's your integrity. It's what you put into the karma bank that'll get you out of trouble if you're accused of something uh, or someone makes a malicious statement about you. So it's, it's that balancing act of, this, of making the choice of when you have to ruffle feathers, of making the choice of when you got to stand up, and sometimes when you have to piss a lot of people off. If you're doing it all the time because you figure you're going to get a headline, uh, you lose credibility very quickly. And if you don't have credibility, nobody's going to pay attention. So uh, 
I, I we always like from our side we like watching you get up and vote against your own party year it's <laughs> it's always a lot of fun and sometimes we shake our heads and think my god how is he going to get back on committee without the whip picking him <laughs> off? But, uh, you know, you got to do that. Some, like, Parliament should be a little more open than it is. Our party should be a little less uptight right. than they are. And so we need to, to bump up against it once in a while. I even thought our committee functioned maybe more effectively. You mentioned before it was under the radar. I sometimes thought it functioned more effectively because there wasn't a parliamentary secretary. It wasn't sort of a closely scrutinized get the party whip in there and help manage our yep. side and, and your whip manages your side and it wasn't so it wasn't theater in a way that it often becomes when it's so preordained by by party whips which can be which less so i think i'm told at least i wasn't in the previous parliament where uh when Stephen harper was the prime minister i'm told it's less like that now but it's, obviously it still plays a role well i'll tell you i when i was first elected i would go to committee and there would be uh, people in the government side it was liberals initially uh who would be reading the newspaper because they were only there to vote yes or no based on what the party whip or what the uh, uh, you know the parliamentary secretary said. Uh, sometimes on the government side there might be five people and only two would speak. The rest were there just to be votes. Uh, I saw this under Stephen Harper. Uh, things got really uh, the committees were really under threat all the time. Everything was decided in camera, so we couldn't even have public discussions about many things. Uh, it was a very negative, toxic atmosphere. The ethics committee was, it was like being in a uh, cage match every day. I mean, the, the parliamentary secretary was Dean Del Mastro. Uh, and then after Dean went to jail, it was Paul Calandra. Uh, and it was like war all the time. And it's really tiring. I mean, I, I don't mind having to go and fight. I mean, that's one of the things the party sends me in is when things are rough. I, I'm a guy that, yeah, I mean, New <laughs> Democrats really want the peaceable kingdom. I'm a guy who doesn't mind scrapping, but it's, it's a real waste of time if you're doing that day in, day out. Uh, committees should be independent. And the other thing I think is really a function for government is a committee should be looking at policies and looking at how government programs are working, not just defending them, because programs don't work the way the bureaucrats often think they work or say they work. So committee can give recommendations like we did twice. We did great recommendations. Uh, both times government ignored it in terms of privacy rights and protecting citizens. But I think what we ended up doing was uh, a larger uh, frame on these issues that are now impossible to ignore. So uh, it's, it's something committee work, but it can be really rewarding. It can be really frustrating. <laughs> As is the life of a parliamentarian, sometimes yeah, exactly. uh, more generally too. Yeah. And you, having been in parliament since 2004, you for some reason thought it was a good idea to do this for 16 years and, and more, but you, you also for some reason thought it was a good idea to run for leader. How, how, how was that experience? Uh, the leadership race was, uh, it was a great experience to run for leader. I mean, I love Canada. I love touring. Uh, I got to see how much how great the country is, how great people are. Uh, you know, I came in second. I'll be, uh, you know, some trivia pursuit nerd and 20 years from now will remember that it was me who came in second. Uh, you know, I wouldn't do it again. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, but so as yeah. someone who doesn't follow, I mean, I obviously am not an NDP voter, although yeah. I was raised in an NDP household, certainly. My, I think my parents were just happy. I wasn't conservative when I got into politics myself. Funnily enough, it, I was a student in the Harris years and that experience also certainly opened my eyes to the importance of politics and, yeah. and participating in politics to make sure that things like that don't happen again. So it's funny that, that you mentioned your, your own experience and activism on that front. But 
I followed that leadership race a little bit at least. And it did seem to me you were there standing up for people who don't have a voice sometimes. And when you were calling for the working income tax benefit to be increased to help end poverty, I thought, what a, what a great idea. Here's a pretty nonpartisan idea that has been out of the mouths of some liberals and some conservatives. And there you were in the leadership highlighting it because I, I actually can't personally think of a more significant measure than to increase basic income supports like that for people who are left behind. Well, I, I, the leadership race was, was a, a good experience. We had a lot of interesting ideas. I mean, Guy Caron ran on a universal basic income, which at the time yeah. I personally didn't support uh, because I feel that we had limited funds. I would rather put it into uh, encouraging people to try a whole bunch of different, like to, you know, a bunch, there's a bunch of uh, programs that we could augment, but it's certainly a reflection of the nature of the growing precarious nature of work. I mean, one thing I find ironic, if you, you know, the, you, the Trudeau government is this line about the middle class, the middle class, the middle class I knew disappeared, um, you know, under years of like after NAFTA and uh, the amount of people who are working in precarious work. And I really tried to get that conversation in leadership because I think there is a new working class and it's not blue collar so much. I mean, it's white collar, it's professors who are uh, without tenure, who are getting 40,000 bucks a year and have no, no safety, people who invest a lot in their education, who have massive debt. So it was a great opportunity to debate a lot of these things. And now with COVID, we're having these conversations. We're looking at the world in a completely different light. And one of the things I'm hoping out of COVID is I don't want to go back to the same old, same old. The idea that this, you know, globalization and and the big one percent are gonna, you know, where the hell were they when we needed them? It's uh, the people making thirteen bucks an hour who are keeping the grocery stores open. So um, the need for a universal basic income right now is very evident because people are going under. So how do we rethink? where we're at, you know, in the NDP leadership, it was all very hypothetical what we do in the perfect world. But now right. we're in the world where all of us have to have this conversation. And it may be a positive moment for us as a nation. It, it's certainly true. There are so many Canadians who are at home today without work, without income, thinking, I never thought I would be in this situation. How could this happen to me? And it just shows just how precarious yeah, all of our, uh, all of our, you know, how precarious our safety net really is. Um, in the leadership, did anyone compare you to Bernie Sanders? I mean, uh, you know, a white-haired, vocal guy who's been saying the same thing for decades, standing up for the little guy. Yeah, I was compared to Bernie Sanders, and I was also compared to him in a negative way, where someone says, you know, I don't want to vote for some old white guy like Charlie Angus. We need a young uh, woman of color or Bernie Sanders. And I was like, man, I'm at least a full generation younger than Bernie, but I was the old white guy in the race. So it was kind of funny, but <laughs> you, you can't argue with that in leadership races. Leadership races are weirder because the normal elections, because you're dealing with your base and, and, and smaller sections of your base speak a lot louder than sort of normal voters. And it's certainly right. you see that in the conservatives with, with the social conservatives who probably don't represent hardly anything, but they are the ones that, play a big part in deciding leadership. So leadership races are different. I mean, the kind of deals I, I found, I just wasn't very good at making deals 
kissing rings, making promises. I just, I just don't do that very well. So I'm, I'm glad. That's why I, I like came, you. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I came in second. I paid my debt off. I got to meet a lot of people. I drastically improved my French. So um, I feel like that was a great experience, but I'm glad I'd been there, done that. Got, and I do have the t-shirts. Uh, I think I still have a box of them. I would take one, by the way. I'll get you one. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. I, I don't. I can't promise to wear it to committee, but I. I will, if you wore, yeah, if you wore it to Indu, just to, to don't not as a visitor at at, at the air, you might get uh, bounced from the committee permanently. Well, I so I was uh, reading up on you a little bit. I I I didn't have to really prepare too much to speak to you because uh, we've we've worked together so much. But I, I I was a little bit amazed to find that you've written seven books and uh, you. Are you writing one now at home? I mean, yes, you, I'm we just, got a little uh, bit more time on our hands. I'm finishing my eighth book right now. So uh, I, I write because I've always been fascinated by history and I don't watch TV and I don't watch sports and I hate politics in the evening. I don't like if I'm back at my apartment in Ottawa, I want to do something else. So I usually uh, listen to records and, and I like to research and write. So I, I have seven published books. My eighth one is uh, uh working title right now is I think called the land for the taking and it's about what happened in northern Ontario in the first two decades of the 20th century with this crazy uh, silver mining boom that happened in cobalt where I live that really turned Canada on its course of being what it is now as an international mining superpower but also battles about class race indigenous rights environment um, a lot of heavy, heavy things went down then. And there was some really radical visions, like really revolutionary visions of what Ontario and Canada could be all happening in this, what was then a very much a wild west frontier town. And I, I don't think we look at our own history very well. And our own history is a lot more interesting and sometimes a lot darker. So uh, I'm finishing the book. I've done, uh, I've done some little docs uh, while we're in seclusion here. I did a thing on the epidemic that hit cobalt. I, 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 on YouTube, it's called, I got a little site with my wife called Radio Free Cobalt. And we do, we cool. started to do uh, uh, histories. I'm doing just a new one on a big mining disaster that happened. So it's sort of like, I get to play Ken Burns when I'm not, uh, when I'm when I'm in uh, self isolation, so I'm doing. That's also a good thing. comparison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, well, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, did you ever? Uh, the only th other thing I would ask you is, you ever figure you'd come on a podcast hosted by a liberal? Uh, that would never never have happened i gotta say you know i like to pretend i'm not partisan but i'm intensely partisan i've never gone on a liberal podcast anywhere but uh being that we did such good work uh, i would have gone on zimmer's uh, podcast uh because uh, he was like he was like the sheriff of our committee yeah, but, exactly uh, Zimmer would want to want to talk about uh, different kinds of guns he has so that'd be kind of funny but uh it was it's Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad that I'm your first politician. I might be your last after depending on the kind of reviews you get. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think you can only, you can only increase my audience. I'm pretty okay. sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. You're right. Uh, that's one thing I, I have to say, whether I, I, I agree with you lots, I would have voted for you in the leadership, but I, uh, you also are, I think you are so effective at raising, uh, you know, elevating the voices of your constituents, but also the concerns. I, I watch a lot of people in Parliament. As a young lawyer, I, I, I watched people in court and kind of copied people's styles. Yeah. I, I don't know that I can copy, you know, I, I can't copy everyone's style as far as it goes in Parliament. Some people are just, they've got their own style and it's not for me, but I, some people are certainly more effective than others and, and you are without question one of those people. So thank you for joining me and I hope to get back to Parliament. I hope we're back in Parliament soon so we can get yeah, back so to work let's, together. Let's get back there. Okay, take care, my friend. All right. All right bye. bye, Charlie. 
That is our episode of Uncommons with Charlie Angus. Thank you for joining, and remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. If you have a suggestion for a topic or a guest, let me know on social media at B-E-Y-N-A-T-E. And while Charlie says he likes to get in the corners and he can be really partisan, he also occasionally says nice things about his colleagues from other parties. So I will leave you with this clip of Charlie at the last ethics meeting in August of 2019, the last parliament. Mr. Erskine-Smith, who I have great respect for. Um, I don't like his shoes, but uh, everything else I've got great respect for. 